Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. Hi, everyone. This is another episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We have three experts in thoracic oncology from around the world. We're going to discuss our stories or research, particularly with diversity and equity and medicine. We have very distinguished guests, and we are going to refer each other by first name as we know each other, and we respect each other and acknowledge each other's title. So I'm going to start with introducing myself and Every, every member is going to introduce themselves as well. So, and Dr. Narjus Duma, I'm an assistant professor of medicine and a thoracic oncologist at the University of Wisconsin Carbone Cancer Center, and I'm also the chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the Department of Medicine at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Gray? Great. Uh, wonderful to be here. I'm Dr. Janelle Gray. I am chair and program leader uh, for the Department of Thoracic Oncology, and I am also co-leader for the Chemical Biology Molecular Medicine Program at Moffitt Cancer Center. Dr. Mathias? Okay. Hi, my name is Clarissa Mathias. I am a medical oncologist. I'm Brazilian, and I'm currently the president of the Brazilian Society of Medical Oncology. I am an ISLC board member for Latin America, and I'm currently the chair of the International Committee for ASCO. Well, let's begin by trying the field of medicine into the bigger context of equity and diversity in each of our countries. I always wonder if you, you know, the events in the last six months have accelerated the conversation or they have brought more awareness to the issues that the three of us have been pushing and pursuing over the years. So I have a question for my friends here. And it's like, do you think what has happened in the last six months have accelerated the conversation? And how have you seen this personally and also in the clinic? So I'm happy to take a stab at that. I think I'll I'll start it off from the personal standpoint and say the short answer is absolutely. Yes, it has definitely been more heightened recently, in particular as a mother of two 11-year-olds, one boy and one girl, and trying to ensure that I prepare them for this world that we are currently in, and also have hope that for their future, as well as other future generations, that we can work toward making this world better. I want to make sure that they feel safe, but also have an awareness of what's going on around them and preparing them for that. It is, you know, heartbreaking, I think, as a mom to, to even to have to grapple with the thought that should I or should I not have this conversation with them? But I thought it was really the right thing to do. From a professional standpoint, we started a lot of initiatives within the Cancer Center and within the Department of Thoracic Oncology itself to ensure that we have a a safe space where we can have courageous conversations, hear people's perspectives, ask others to be open and to listen and to recognize that your experiences may very much differ from others. There are some that cannot wake up the next day and go back to this sense of of normalcy. And that to even have that ability is a privilege that some are are not afforded. You know, we've also, as chair of the department, I took it on myself to, as well as a, a Black female, took it upon myself in collaboration with leadership to really kind of tackle this within our department. And you know, one of the first things I did was was really just listen and reached out to all of the Black team members within my program to see how they were doing. And it was so important for me to listen and listen to what their journey had been before, as well as with the recent events in the past six months. And I just felt that I had to make a statement. I recognized that I could not just say this freely, and I actually wrote something down and, and read it to the team. And the the key points there were that there is a lot of hurt, there's a lot of fear at these these atrocities that cannot be explained. And these are confounded, not by just what's happening within the the past six months, but also things that have happened in the past. And we're not talking years, we're not talking decades, we're talking centuries here. And this has led to a collective anger and frustration. Um, and, And we shouldn't allow 
disruptive demonstrations to distract from the reasons why we're seeing these protests. Um, also provided them an environment where they could have the courageous conversations, but also access to resources. I think a lot of people need with EAPs, with how to be an authentic ally, how to speak up. So I think it was a very good process that we're going through and that I hope that we're still having this dialogue uh, many years from now on how we can make improvements. Clarissa, we would love to hear what was your experience in the last six months? Yeah, the last six months have been really introspective for all of us. I think staying at home and um, having the opportunity of receiving all the information that is coming from all over the world, uh, especially regarding how people are dealing with Black people in the U.S., uh, really made us think about how we are facing this problem in Brazil. Brazil has been known as a non-racial country, but that's not true. Because if we look among people, among the working classes, different working classes, we have uh, very few minorities that are really included. So we've started in the Brazilian Society of Clinical Oncology a great movement towards really uh, bringing people to discuss that. We had a great podcast that was really well received. We've also addressed the question of gay people. And um, I actually have a personal experience with my son at home in the same ways that Janelle mentioned how scared uh, she is. We are also very scared when we we father and mother um, gay uh, sons and daughters because we are always afraid of Brazil is actually the country that killed more homosexuals in the world. So we need to discuss that. So we've started some movements um, across Brazil within the, the society and that was really well received. So I think we really need to make that a daily exercise of inclusion. There's no point in just talking about it. We really need to act and we really need to put that in practice. And we really need to avoid any kind of uh, bad comments or anything that can hurt the other and act uh, with compassion. I think for me it has been different compared to the things I, I have worked in diversity, equity, and inclusion for years. But the current events have me introspect and my own privilege. I'm a woman of color with an accent in the United States. I, I didn't grow up in this country. And the latest event have made me realize that just being a physician is a privilege that many people don't. And yes, we I encounter many challenges for who I am, but they're no far, they're not even close to the challenges that my patients and my medical students and my mentees are encountering every day. So I think you made me realize that I have more privilege than I ever knew I had. I have. And then I have this new position as the chair of the diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Department of Medicine. And the recent events very close to home have brought not only more work, but to be conscious that this is happening in our backyard. This is no isolated groups of people. Is my neighbors is my friends and that we can do big things if we acknowledge that this is a systemic problem. It's a structural racism that has been embedded in stereotypes that affect many people every day. But I also have been, being honest, I also been tasked with the, I have been taxed higher in the latest six months with the minority tax. And, and to explain a little bit what the minority tax is that Many people of color are often put down to the task of fixed racism, where in fact we, we suffer from the disease and we're also told that we have to fix it. So for the people that are hearing this, I think I want to be conscious that we do, I love the work I do, but sometimes it can feel overwhelming because you're like, oh, NJ, you need to fix this or fix unconscious bias in medicine, which is my area of research. I I, I wish I could, but I think we need allies. We need allies for all backgrounds in order to make real progress. Because over the centuries, like Janelle said, we have been fighting this fight, but we cannot do it alone. We need allies for 
female, male, non-binary, all racial backgrounds, all religions to work in these systemic and structural challenges because they're all based in racism and sexism. So I, I have a pledge for everybody who's listened to this to become more allies because we need you. We only don't want to invite you, but we need you to be, to, to be with us and to fight with us and the front lines. And I hope that you can join us. So thank you for letting me share my thoughts. That was, that's fantastic, Clarissa and, and, and Nargis. And I just want to thank you for sharing your perspective. And as I'm listening, I wonder if you could share a little more detail about your specific experiences um, on this topic and, and tell us what kind of piqued your interest in it. Going, pushing a little bit deeper, and I'm going to uh, ask uh, Clarissa perhaps if you can go first. Sure. So my personal experience first in the U.S. where I did my training and um, I was a woman, a foreigner. Um, I did my medical oncology training at UPenn where there were very few foreigners and uh, it was really hard. I was always trying to prove myself. I had two small children. So I, I was a mother, a foreigner, a woman. And um, some days I would go back crying um, and really trying to struggle to, you know, survive in that world, that male, um, you know, very scary world. But I, I strived and I, and I was able to, to grow well. And, and that made really, me really strong even to come back to Brazil and um, start a new path again as a woman from the northeast region of Brazil, which is considered sort of the low end region. And um, now, when I was just elected president of the Brazilian Society of Clinical Oncology, that was really sort of a personal uh, major triumph because I remember when we were discussing the candidacy and Someone, I said, oh, I would like to run. And someone said, but you? I said, yes, me, <laughs> why not? Oh, because you don't live in Sao Paulo. I said, it doesn't matter. You know, I can do my job from, from Salvador. So when uh, we are really making a lot of things, uh, good things in the society now. And um, the other day, someone from Sao Paulo, um, a male well-known physician from Sao Paulo called me and said, oh, I wanted to congratulate you guys because you're doing such a great job. And actually our directory has a lot of very strong female that are doing a great job. So I think we really need to act on personal examples and show the new generations that it is possible, that we are changing oncology, that we are changing medicine, that we are able to you know, uh, be a good mother and be a good physician and be a good president and director and leader in the area. And I'm really happy that now Heather was elected to become our next president uh, at ISLC. I think she's going to be uh, one of the best presidents ever. And I'm sure she's going to open a path to a lot of us in the future. Here, here. I'm gonna uh, ask uh, Nargis if you can, if you wanted to chime in also. Yes, so for me, my interest started early on in my career because I landed in this country and despite me graduating first at my medical school, when I landed in this country, I was already labeled with these stereotypes, which I don't fit most of them. And during my first year of, of training in the US as a resident, I was labeled as too Latina or too colorful. And that spiraled to a point that I felt like I didn't belong in medicine. And I was very close to just giving up on medicine, despite having many generations of doctors at my house and being the daughter of two surgeons. And then I realized that it was just the environment not welcoming me. And if that was happening to me, that I have a, I would say, a strong personality and very goals focus, how is this affecting other groups of people that not only come into the U.S., but they're from here, that were born here and raised here. So I think feeling like I didn't belong is what 
motivate me to do this uh, because I don't want any trainee anywhere else uh, to feel like they don't belong in medicine when they work so hard to make it. And I think it's, it's my duty to make sure that what I went through doesn't happen the same to other Latinas or any group that may feel marginalized uh, during training, during medical training. I think those are those are great points that you both bring up. And, and just to kind of build on that from my own personal experience, a lot of what motivates me is uh, is honestly my daughter. And uh, I, I distinctly remember one day I was telling somebody the story. We we had some friends at the house, and my daughter made a comment, something to the effect of that she was going to be, you know, the next president of the United States. And and the family that was there with us turned to her and said that, oh, oh, you're a girl, like you don't want to, you don't want to do that, or something to that effect. And so I I turned to my daughter and said, you know, you can do whatever you want to do and you can be whatever you want to be. And I then turned to my son and, and the person I was telling the story to interjected and said, Oh, and you told him he could do whatever he wanted to be. He, you know, he could be whatever he wanted to be. Also, I said, no, no one in society is going to tell him he can't do something. He's a man. I said, I turned to him, I turned to my son and I said, you don't ever do that to a woman. You don't ever tell her that she can't do something. And they, you know, this was a few years ago. My kids are only 11. So I've always had these dialogue and conversations with them about the realities of what it is. And I think you both touched on very key and poignant points. You know, those, these, your gender and your race, your name uh, come with these perceptions of comp- competence or incompetence that others have decided to assign to you based on their own implicit bias. And I think a lot of what we're, we've seen and are seeing is, is laced in implicit bias. And we all have them. I have them. I have to take pauses and, and to what was mentioned earlier, do a lot of introspection to ensure that I am being as fair and as consistent in, in, in my decision, in my decision making. I think that throughout the years on top of that, in, from the professional standpoint, I've watched others get their feelings effortlessly and automatically valued their thoughts and their perspectives. Whereas I feel as a female, as a black person, it's something you almost have to fight for. You know, Clarissa, you brought up a good point. There's diversity and there's equity, but I think among this, we need inclusion. And it's great if you're going to put up a pie chart and show that you have minorities in your workforce, but if you're not including them and they don't have a seat at the table, if they don't feel like they have a sense of belonging, a sense of feeling that their voice and their works are respected, I think then there's still, there's still work to do. And as I've kind of moved up throughout the ranks, I've gained this sense of responsibility. And, you know, I frequently find myself seeing and observing things and then saying, well, if I don't speak up, who will? And I've actually, I've had these discussions with the executive leadership at Moffitt that if we don't speak up and we don't say something, then our team members are not going to feel comfortable to do this. So to your challenges of being authentic allies, I Uh, I think those are great points and echo those sentiments and learning how to speak up and doing research in that area to learn, um, to learn how to do that. I think that's, that's really great advice and very meaningful. I hope for those, uh, those listening. Thanks for sharing those experiences. Now let's shift specifically to diversity in healthcare. Let's talk about how attention to diversity improves care for our patients. Janelle, would you like to start? Uh, certainly. I think that diversity in the workforce is, uh, is necessary. I think it, it adds value, it adds a different perspective. And there are now studies showing that it makes your team stronger and, and more efficient and more effective in being able to take care of the population that's out there. I think what about uh, 30% of the population 
uh, are minority are classified as minorities, but only about 15% of healthcare professionals are minorities. And this makes a difference because there's also studies out there that that show that if a patient can relate from a race and ethnicity or language standpoint with their practitioner, with their provider, they're more likely to have a better patient experience. They're more likely to have less anxiety, report less pain. And I think these things are very meaningful um, when you're looking at reducing disparities within healthcare and doing the best that we can for patients. I don't think this in any way means that uh, minority physicians should be expected solely to take care of minority patients, but I believe that we need to also work toward a level of cultural competency that spans across everyone working in the, in the medical field and to help our patients get the best experience again that they possibly can. Um, I think in my case, as I mentioned, I was very isolated during training. I was often the only Latina and I'm still often the only Latina. I have to say when I see Clarissa in the room, I'm like, yes, there's one more. But um, diversity is important because the groups that are growing fastest in the United States are minority groups. So Latinos are one of the fastest growing groups. In 2030, we're expecting to be over 20% of the population, close to 25%. And we are the minority majority in some states like Texas and California. Having their aspects of cancer care that cannot be translated in books. And those aspects are cultural aspects. Having workforce that is diverse, we provide understanding of those cultural aspects. And I'm going to give an example I always provide. So I'm South American, but I'm Venezuelan. I'm from Venezuela. And I also have family in the Dominican Republic. We use a lot of remedies. We use a lot of teas that our grandmas have recommended for centuries. So how do you as a Latino patient or a Hispanic patient, are you taking any supplements that we say no? Because we don't consider the teas and the remedies to be supplements. So remedies are remedios. So there's no a supplement. So then you ask that patient, are you in any supplements? No. And then you move on with your questions. So there's a cultural disjoint there, how you see supplement versus remedy. And these teas, most of the teas are tend to be benign, but some of them can affect therapies. They can um, affect some of the targeted therapies, how fast or how slow the drug is metabolized. So I think having that diverse workforce, we help understand these little thinnies uh, that affect patient care. And also the language barrier is very important. I can tell you that despite all the bias I have encountered, when I walk into a room, that happened yesterday because I'm in consoles right now, and I walk into a room and it was a Spanish-speaking patient, and I say, hola, como estas? So, hi, how are you? You can see the relief in his face, which is like, oh, my God, thank God. I don't have to, like, pretend to know English or use this iPad because we're not using in-person interpreters anymore. In that moment, make me feel like everything that we're doing is worth it. Because that moment, the patient was like, I can talk about my cancer. I can share my concerns in my own language. And that kind of fills my cup from here until like two months from now. And I, I get very excited about this subject because it matters so much when you walk into that room and the patient is relief to see you just because you're excess. And I think that's just priceless on many, many, many occasions. Yeah, I would like to bring another um, important point when dealing with patients. In Brazil, there is a huge religious diversity. And uh, it's sad, again, that we respect each other and that, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're a Catholic or if you're a spiritualist or whatever. But in truth, there are some dogmas that are uh, really important. And um, we just started here in the hospital that I'm working, a huge project for Jehovah's Witness. And it's amazing how when you do that and you, and you accept people and you accept people's beliefs, they really feel comfortable, you know, and that 
it's really hard for someone to say, no, I'm going to go against my beliefs. So I think it's really the best way to take care of people is to accept, you know, to accept their teeth and to really look into that and discuss with them and accept their um, ways to look at life. Um, I think it's, um, we've been doing that. We, we just started at the beginning of the pandemia, a, an ecumenical, uh, spiritual um, cult every week that we've been doing online. And it's amazing how the patients are coming up to us and saying, oh, thank you so much for taking care of that part of my soul that is really left behind. And it's really, um, especially there are a lot of African religions here in, in Brazil. So by the time you accept and you let people be what they are, how better they feel. And I, I do believe we don't have measures for that, but I do believe that they even go uh, do better in terms of treatment. Building on that, um, I also want to share a few examples of disparities I have seen um, in lung cancer. But I want to hear about your experiences. Which, type, which types of disparities have you seen in lung cancer? Uh, not only in the last six months, but during your career. So actually, here in Brazil, we have a huge disparity that is uh, between the patients who have a medical insurance and the patients that don't. So here we have all the drugs that are approved, um, the same as in the U.S. and in Europe, for patients who have insurance. But for the patients that do not, uh, we, we even don't have EGFR, anti-EGFR drugs or anti-ALK. Um, and no immunotherapy for sure. So it's really hard when you face a patient and you know that he has a disease that could be controlled and you don't have access to that those medications. So one way we've been really trying to do that is with research um, because, you know, physicians know how to do research here. And, you know, when you open a study that has as the control arm the best treatment that it can give, you can then do your best for the patient. Um, I know we have a lot of uh, economical constraints and probably in the near future, we won't be able to equalize uh, the non-insured patients with the insured patients. So I think we really need to train the generations to improve their research skills and then we can bring more studies to Brazil. I think that's a that's a wonder those are wonderful points. I think in the United States that we also see that there are disparities between those that have insurance versus those that do not. Uh, and this also affects those afflicted with lung cancer, including delays in access affects access, delays in delays in care. And when those things happen, um, it does lead to detrimental outcomes for patients. If we can kind of close, when we do close those gaps, then we see that once patients get in the door, we, you know, within your, your race, ethnicity, that you can have a better, there's opportunities there to have a better outcome. When we've looked over time at the trends, the incidence of lung cancer at what point was on this steep incline for Black men in particular, uh, allow, out of the norm of what you would expect given the level of smoking within that within that community. And interestingly enough, over time though, it's actually now starting to be on the decline. And so we're, we've had some positive effects within getting word out there and getting and reaching these communities about the importance of, of not smoking, getting uh, access to care. Uh, one of the things I think that happens in the, can happen in the black community is this idea of fatalism. And that, you know, the thought that uh, whatever's going to happen to me is going to happen to me. And regardless if I go in early or late, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die from whatever's uh, going on with me. And so I think large efforts within education, within literacy to get the word out there that getting in to see the doctor is going to make a big, make a big I- difference. And so we need to continue these efforts that we have ongoing so we continuously reduce these disparities that we're seeing. I, I think that's a very clear 
points and important um, about what I have seen in lung cancer. I, I specialize in women with lung cancer for a particular reason. And it's because many of my patients as women, um, they have a light or no smoking history. And they present with this, you know, constant cough. And I have seen instances in which my women are being taken to Two of my patients were taken to an endometrial biopsy without having any bleeding or any uh, bleeding in between periods uh, before somebody did an X-ray. So I think the effect on conscious bias in lung cancer is very large because lung cancer has been labeled as a disease that affects mostly men that have a heavy smoking history, which in many cases that is in fact true. Like the majority of the cases are induced by smoking. But I think a lot of my research focuses in including and understanding that the number one reason all women are dying for cancer in the United States is lung cancer. And these women face a lot of stigma from the diagnosis all the way to the moment they die. And that is a disparity for me, how some of these women lie in their community. They're forced to lie that they have cancers like breast cancer because they're afraid of sharing that they have lung cancer because of the stigma. And they already have enough in their plate dealing with a metastatic and fatal disease to encounter this stigma and have to lie or, or say they don't have lung cancer just because the society has a different picture. So that's a, a type of disparity I see it every day. And I see many women dress and, and clothes that support advocacy for other cancer that the cancer they have because they're afraid to be neglected by the community. Because the first thing they ask them is like, do you smoke? And I, I often find it is that relevant when you have the cancer, like the past is past and we have to work in a smoking sensation. But it breaks my heart every time when my my patients tell me that they haven't shared it with their family because they don't want to be judged. And it's different type of disparity in lung cancer. And to be even a little bit more specific, I really want to talk about micro-invalidations and microaggressions. So micro-invalidations are behaviors of comments in which invalidate somebody's experience as a person of color. One example of this is like, I don't see color when I see you. So that comment invalidates the experience that that person has shared her entire life because we are born who we are. And microaggressions are comments or behaviors that try to marginalize a group. Uh, and another example of that is like, where are you really from from? Or an example for gender bias is like, oh, women's, women's cannot do this. And what Dr. Uh, Gray Janelle share about the comment that somebody made to her daughter. So I, I want to hear from you. How do you see these micro invalidations and microaggressions affecting our society and also our interactions with our patients with lung cancer? Yeah, so I, I definitely think that these are these tend to be these subtle day to day occurrences that people of color and minorities experience you know being in in meetings these can be verbal with a tone these can be nonverbal somebody standing over you as they talk um, uh, you know staring at you as they pretend to address the whole audience but they're really directing uh, these comments specifically uh, sternly at you because you dared to ask the question I, I think, you know, those are examples of uh, the, the microaggressions. The microinvalidations are, you know, I've, I've certainly had these happen to me where people forget what you ask a question about and they come back to a meeting and pretend that they didn't, that they're addressing your question when they know they're not. When they say, oh, I don't remember you working on that or giving credit to other people when you know you led the charge for that. And, you know, I've had people tell me, oh, in meetings, oh, can you re-send me back the emails about that, of that occurrence? And there were like 15 emails about this and a big presentation on it. And I think for, for those, those are the areas where we need the authentic allies to, to have awareness of, that, of these occurrences and be able to speak up. I think somebody mentioned, Nardis, I think it was you earlier, 
that people have come to you in your role and said that you need to fix this. And, but you're not the problem, right? And I've had other people do the same thing to me. Janelle, what are you going to do? How are you going to fix this? And, I, and I, I think it puts us in a challenging position, but I think what we can do are things like what we're doing today is to really raise that awareness, hope that people will then take this and do their own self-introspection and get to a point where we no longer get to a place where these are overlooked, where they are under-respected. Um, you know, I heard somebody at my job once describe these, their microaggressions and micro-invalidations. They're actually macro aggressions and macro invalidations because they have deep lasting effects on the people who um, experience them. And I, and I think it, it, it eats away and undermines the culture um, of an of a institution and has long lasting effects from an engagement and in, feeling inclusion, in, included, right? We, we all hear this word um, inclusion, but to me, as an institution, as a society, you can't just say it. You have to make sure that those individuals that you are trying to, that you want to include, actually feel included as well. And so I just, you know, I think those are, these are great examples that you bring up and that we have to work collectively to move away from them and call them out when we see them respectfully and then work toward uh, uh, getting rid of them, honestly. Yeah, I do agree. That's a great point. We need to really put things, uh, like we say in Portuguese, on top of the table and really make them clear. And, you know, I've really faced that throughout my life. So looking at a scientific program, for example, and seeing a huge amount of uh, men that are giving lectures and then very few women and then when you ask about, oh, no, you know, there was an oversight. No, we need to call people's attention. And I agree with Janelle that those are really micro-invalidations. Um, because if you let that go deep in yourself, you can really lose your self-esteem. So we, we need to be um, really examples for the next generations and to our generations. Uh, we really need to speak up and really call attention to people to make uh, inclusion not a, you know, just a, uh, a thing that you talk about, but really a reality. And I'm really glad that we are having this conversation today. I think this is a, a game change. Um, and I, I do congratulate ISLC for doing so. And Nargis, I don't know if you had any specific examples that you wanted to give. I know you gave some general ones, but have you experienced any microaggressions, micro-invalidations throughout your professional or personal life? I think I have experienced actually lately more in which, mm -hmm. uh, and also this is called mansplaining <laughs> in a way, in which um, <laughs> it is not, it's not believed what I Very know, <laughs> what I believe is true. Right, what I say is true. And then I have to say this because I'm doing a large study with the GoTo Foundation to evaluate sexual function in women with lung cancer. It's an international study. And <laughs> recently, a few months ago, I, I remember I was talking about vaginal dryness secondary to target therapy. And was the most I would say outrage introduction I have like interaction I have got in a meeting because uh, one of, of the persons in the meeting, a male told me, oh, no, no, I'm going to tell you about vaginal dryness. And I think that was, it still sticks in my head how, you know, as a woman of color who's doing this research, who also is familiar with uh, these issues, how somebody invalidate my concerns because what I was saying is not what they believe is one of the reasons of vaginal dryness. And I, I still, it's stuck in my head. And I, I always talk about it, how I was mansplained about vaginal dryness. And I think that's the, the story that kind of, I, re, I will remember probably until the day I die. That's really, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, I think to, to your point about people seeing, I don't, I don't see color or I think that that kind of aligns with that also. And, and the, when we get the why do why black lives matter, all lives matter, and people, um, you know, there's data about why black lives matter and the historical context about what's been going on for centuries, 
and that's been compounded over uh, over numerous uh, generations. And so I, I I love that term mansplain. <laughs> I, uh, I got to remember that one, um, but I think we've all unfortunately been in that in that position, and um, you know I think part of it is also learning how to navigate that and, and teaching those junior to us about how to navigate those situations because they will probably find themselves uh, there also. You know I, I'd, I'd like to shift our conversation to what the majority group can do to help. What suggestion? do you have to help to be part of the solution? I feel like we spent a lot of time talking about the problem. Uh, Clarissa, I don't know if you want to start us off. Yeah, I think we really need to talk about it. So when you talk about and you bring it to the table, so when you talk about homosexuality, when you talk about race disparities, when you talk about economical disparities, you really bring the issue uh, to the top of the table, and you can really start to address solutions. And um, I think as much as we haven't done that in the past, like I don't remember when I was a fellow ever discussing that. Now that we talk about, you know, inclusion of women and, you know, of uh, different religion uh, patterns to you know, all kinds of uh, structures, I think we, we really need to, if you don't talk about, you are never going to, to uh, really um, solve the problem. So I think talking about is what we need to do. And again, I'm really glad about with the um, ISLC's action on doing so, and we've done that at SBOC and ASCO is also doing that, ASMO, and we have when we another thing is if we see something that uh, goes against that, we need to call people's attention and bring it to the light so we can really solve the problem. And I think for the majority group, I I want to be clear that we are not trying to attack anybody or say, oh, we're better than you or not. And that's not the case. We're sharing our experiences so you can see how things are from our eyes because micro-invalidations and microaggressions are often unconscious and they're often not seen as a you know overly racist or overly sexist comment. I think I really am a big advocate for cultural humility from everybody, not only the majority group, but also any underrepresented group. Cultural humility comes from the basis that we try to understand where our partners or patients or neighbors are coming from. Instead of saying, no, my culture is better than yours for this than that. Because when we come from a place of understanding and a place of curiosity, we can learn and become better human beings. I have learned so much when I come from a place where I'm willing to learn. Like I, I always, uh, I always told the story that my husband is half Ukrainian and half Native American and I'm Latina and we go marry. And if we wouldn't have practiced cultural humility, we probably wouldn't be together today. And I have learned things from my husband culture that have made me a better human being. And I have learned food that I thought we never like that now is part of my favorite food. So coming from that place for everybody, I think is a big progress. It doesn't take a lot of time. You don't have to like restructure everything. If we, every member, everybody who's listened to this wakes up and say, today my goal is to come for a place of curiosity, no judge my neighbor because I believe my culture, my background is better than yours. And just to know why they have, what they bring to the table, I think it is wonderful. Like I, you learn and you become better and you can fight your unconscious bias if you practice cultural humility. And that's one of the things you have to be intentional, right? It's not like you just decide to do it one day and it stops this every day. Be there to listen because cultural humility cannot be done without listening to our partners. And, and understand that as a minority group, the majority group has 
things we can learn and the majority group can learn things from us. And I think that we make the dialogue become a reality. I think those are, those are fantastic points about reaching across the aisle, right, and, and listening. You know, if I can add to that, I think there, that those who have a privilege should recognize their privilege. And I also think that they should recognize the power in their privilege. You know, we're, we're asking people to be allies and to help uh, improve things for all of our futures. And we cannot do it alone. I think that there is this sense of apathy and uh, propagation of injustice that then occurs when people remain silent. And so there's something that uh, I think is part of the solution, I think, is that acknowledgement first that there's an issue. I think getting to that point of working toward understanding what Nargis is talking about and then using our voices collectively to, to move the needle, I think that's where we can all serve to be part of the, to be part of the solution. Yeah, that's so great. I wonder if we can each spend a moment talking about the progress we've seen or hope we have for the future of diversity and equity in medicine. I, I think this is Nargis. I think the benefit what we have seen the progress is that some people, more people than before, are valuing that diversity improves patients' outcome, diversity improves research, is or strength. Diversity brings strength to us. But I'm going to take a second to say that that's progress, but diversity without inclusion is another way of discrimination. If you are key in hiring underrepresented groups of medicine into your institution, not only physicians, nursing staff, research staff, it is important, but you also have to make them feel included. Diversity without inclusion is like you get invited to the prom, but you don't get invited to dance. And that is a type of discrimination. So we are making progress. We are valuing diversity, but I also want to make sure diversity should come with inclusion. I think that's a that's a fantastic point. I think for the progress that I have seen uh, being made, our initiatives such as this one and similar to Clarissa, I really want to commend uh, ISLAP for having this podcast and and letting us share our perspective and our our voices and our views on this. And also, you know, within our own organizations and within our life, I think that we can look at things such as developing multicultural groups and this is something we're doing at Moffitt on a larger on a larger scale with our LGBT community. We've had infrastructure and a group for that for many, many years. They've been <clears throat> very, very active looking at starting um, uh, one for blacks as well as uh, Hispanic slash Latin X. And that's an opportunity where people can feel safe. They can find like-minded individuals, what you know, avoiding what Nargis has described and many of us have felt before about that sense of isolation. Um, do I belong here? I think that there, this is something that I hope will not be a trend, will not be just something we're talking about now. And I think that, you know, a year from now, if we're not still talking about this, then we failed. Um, and many years from now, there's always opportunities for improvement. In order to really move the needle, this has to be ingrained in the culture of the institution and ingrained in something within you as an individual. And taking that pause to recognize, yes, I have implicit biases. Yes, I need to take a pause before maybe I respond or, or I act and just be be thoughtful so we can get to that place where it's leads to something that's more sustainable, leads to more meaningful advancements and drive that, that is driven by intentional uh, change. And I hope that we see this in our actions, not only today, but in the future. Yeah, this is great. So actually the medical community really leading this uh, movement. And uh, actually when you look at someone with compassion you know if you see compassion means uh, being in someone's shoes 
So it's if we look at each other with compassion, you will present people in different way, you will treat people in different way. If we look, there is a figure that shows that our skulls are the same. They don't have colors, they don't have different colors, they don't have, you know, different sexual orientations, or they don't have different nationalities. So we are actually at the end all the same and we need to treat each other as being ourselves and never do to someone what we wouldn't want done to ourselves so i think we are hoping for a better future i think this pandemia really made people think and uh we will thrive on these um outrageous times so thank you both of you Clarissa and Janelle, for making the time to discuss this very important topic and for the work you are doing both in your community and the society in Brazil and as the chief of thoracic oncology at Moffitt. I think there's many things we can continue to talk, but also I, I would like to always get a call for action. And thank you for the invitation to the ISLC group to the podcast and um, I will say this, thank you and goodbye. For me, this is Narjos and I will leave the other members give their last few words. Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, this has been a pleasure and honor for me to be here. And, you know, ISLAC is a organization that has been dedicated and been a champion for the global community and has led by example for many, many years. And this is just another example of them being at the forefront, being proactive about challenging issues that their members encounter, whether from patients or all the way through to providers. And so I thank them again for this opportunity, and I hope this has been um, insightful. And thank you to Nargis and Clarissa for uh, sharing their stories. I've certainly, I've learned lots of things uh, just listening to you today that I know will stay with me throughout uh, my journey. Yeah, that has been really incredible to spend the last hour talking to the two of you and um, you're really examples of people to whom the current generations and the future generations should look and uh, really know that we will have a better future and we should work on a better present too. Again, I would like to congratulate ISLC. I would like to thank Becky Bunn for her great work and uh, Chris Martin and Strickland Bonner for helping us. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud share them with your friends and colleagues.